You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hey, everybody. Jackie Lewis here. Welcome to this second season of Love, Period. This season, we're focusing our conversations on my new book, Fierce Love, a bold path to ferocious courage and rule-breaking kindness that can heal the world. Each of my friends will be helping me to think about the themes in each chapter, nine practical practices that can help us love ourselves, love our posse, and then love the world into healing. It all starts with you, and we're going to give you practical tips to make these practices a part of your life. In order to kick us off, I invited my friend Waj Ali to come and be with us and talk about the theme in Chapter 1, Love Yourself Unconditionally. It all starts here. We know you loved Waj in the first season, and I'm just delighted to have him back. Hey, Waj Ali. Hi. Reverend Jackie, pleasure to be on with you again. I didn't offend or upset too many people last time, so it's good to know that you had... Or maybe you were really desperate, and the person that you wanted on, like uh, Hasan Minhaj or Sanjay Gupta, said no, and so you went on your brown person Rolodex and just said, Waj, get him. I'm like the Tony Randall. So this is this funny. is a deep cut. I'm the Tony Randall of Reverend Jackie's uh, podcast. Like Tony that Randall so used to just Alec. get you know, like whenever Johnny Carson needed someone, he goes Tony, and he was just like sleeping. Let's get Tony, he's like sleeping <laughs> under the couch. He goes, "What? You're just terrible and funny, but actually, you're my favorite Wajahat in the world. Yeah, I'm the only. <laughs> so I'm the only Wajahat that you that's know. The, that's why I called you." <laughs> Tell me what your name means. What's that about? Uh, Wajahat is a, Wajahat. a name that you should probably not name your kids uh, in, in America if you don't <laughs> want them to be teased. But it is a Pakistani name, with, but it's the Arabic root. And, the, and it means one of good face, one who is esteemed. One of good face, one who is esteemed. And your mother and your father say it like with a rapidness and a certain kind of syllabic. Go for it. Say it one more time. It's like, yeah, so it's like, it's it. like taking out a katana and just stabbing someone like, Wajahat. <laughs> in, in America, though, we go, we, for what, you know, whatever reason, just you know, everyone has an accent. It's, it's the language. In America, they, we break it up and we go, Wajahat. But, <laughs> Which makes me feel like a Star Wars yeah. character or something. Wajahat is it. The Wajahat, Wajahat are coming. <laughs> Prepare They're the coming armada. right now. Exactly. What, is, what does what Jackie money? mean? Jacqueline. Oh, my God. Well, Jackie is like, Jackie means hip pastor in a red lip. Of course. That's what Jackie means. But Jacqueline is the female French of Jacob, and it means heel grabber. <laughs> what the heck, that's, Mom? That's honorable. What? Did I seem like a heel grabber when I was in there? <laughs> I didn't have a twin. I wasn't grabbing any heels. What's that about? I don't know. Uh, it, it means uh, <laughs> if I was to put a very hallmark positive spin on it as a politician, I would say that <laughs> you're you're grabbing on to those who are moving forward and making sure that you're bringing along the rest who are marginalized. So you're the, you're the connector. Okay. I, I'll, I'll, all right. That kind of <laughs> satisfies. But mostly I'm named after Jacqueline Kennedy. And so was my cousin, Jackie. So that was just weird. We were two years apart. And whenever you're hanging out, your mom's like, Jackie? And you're like, who do you mean? You know, oh, which one of us? But both of us named after Jacqueline Kennedy. But Jacqueline, isn't Jacqueline, you know, Jackie has like an energy to it. Jacqueline is just so regal. So both names are just really like, but Jacqueline, like, like, can you imagine someone being named Jacqueline in 2021, 2022? That's I don't know. I don't know if I 
I don't know, but I like Jacqueline. I really do like it, and I just don't love that it's associated with grabbing heels and stealing <laughs> birthrights. These are, I just don't love that part. <laughs> you you, you want it to be associated with fierce love. Exactly, exactly. Great segue. So watch, I'm holding my book while we're talking. I see I it. have it here That's as a prop, why. so I could tell you I'm holding it. Look at it. that. I Look am. at that. Look at that. That's amazing. That's a, It's the hardcover official copy of... Reverend Jackie's book that's out next month, and uh, you, you're telling me that you just got it? I just got it. Uh, as we're speaking, it's mid-October, and they just came in to the warehouse. You know, there's an issue with publishing, right? right? Books are not coming. Mine are here. And my wonderful publicist, I'll say her name, Christina, she's great. She got a copy, wrapped it up in gold paper, and then she put it in a brown paper bag and messengered it to my house. Lovely. So my husband thought it might be porn, but then he was like, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> so, He's like, so I we, won't we, judge. <laughs> I won't judge. <laughs> exactly. But we opened it up and we took pictures and it's very exciting. Did you, uh, um, I mean, I, I, we, we've talked about this before, you know, uh, before recording, but uh, we didn't get too much into depth about it. But, uh, you know, when you held, when, when you, when you held the copy of the book, uh, was it like, um, you know, because I, I, I held the copy of the galley of my book. My book's out in a couple months. And again, for p- folks who don't know, the galley is the, like the unofficial version that like the publicist sends to reviewers, right? It's not supposed to be like, you know, if you review it, you're supposed to like check for actual quotes. It's like 99% finished. But, you know, the the real copy that you just had, that that's what's going to be in the bookshelves. That's what people are going to see in that's like right. Hudson and, and Barnes and Nobles. Did you feel like... When you held it, like like give it's like a child almost, like I like I'm holding my child close to me. I I really did. And by the way, I see your galley behind you, so I'm going to ask you how that felt. That looks really good back there. I like the color. I like the I like thank the you, text. Thank you. I really did work on this book in different iterations for nine years. Mm. Nine. What is it going to be? Self help. What am I trying to say? How am I? What am I trying to do with it? And I really wanted Waj for us to just like stop where religion is the weapon and the killer of people and the divider of communities and to get a different kind of feeling about God, mm. which you, you and I both believe in God. But I realized that I wanted actually secular people, too, to find their way into the book. So I shifted to talk about love, fierce love. And I feel so proud of it. It took nine months to write during COVID and post-fire, but it's out, it's here, and it does feel like it is my lifelong everything I believe Mm -hmm. in nine steps. That's how it really feels to me. Like This is my sermon in nine steps. And and, and you said nine months, but actually— more accurately, it took you nine years because people sometimes yes, forget right. that, right? Like I, I wrote a that's play right. back in the day, but I, if you really, if you measure how long it took, it probably took me four or five sittings, but it took me four or five mm-hmm. sittings over two and a half years. So when wow. people ask you yeah. like, how long did it take you? It, yeah. You know, that, that's the gestation period. And like for you, it's like your that's life. Right. Like you could not have written this. Hmm. I, I think we're talking about that, right? Like you cannot, yeah. you, you sit there and you think to yourself, well, people say it's just a book. And, and I say, of course, in the grand scheme of things, I have no delusions of grandeur. This is just a book, one of thousands of books that is released every week. And what does it mean? Nothing. What does it mean? Everything. 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 Yeah. It's, it's, it's because it's, it's, you would not have been able to write this, that particular book, Fierce Love, which, right. is, which is coming out, if you did not live your life and experience That's what so you had experienced. True. 
it's really so true, Watch. And my publisher was so, I mean, my agent, Todd, was so great to kind of read the world two years ago mm. and, and say, now's the time, Jackie. Also, he just had his pulse on what was happening in the world. And we all were suffering with all those tragic, horrible killings of black bodies, mm. right? Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and, uh, you know, George Floyd. So he read the, the world and my publisher, Marnie, just was such a good midwife is what I want to say. Mm. So that really does work in that metaphor with the baby. Like she just helped me push it out uh, with a light editing hand. And I had such a good time writing. I really did. Did you have fun writing your book? You know, I, I it's one of those things where uh, I'm assuming, yes, the answer to your question is yes, but I'm assuming based on what you've told me, to get, to get started took f- years for you, right? Nine years? Yes, it did. And it's very interesting that I think that's almost how long it took me because my agent, who's a, hmm. just a great guy, PJ Mark, he signed me like in 2011. And I was <laughs> I, I was supposed <laughs> to deliver like a book to him in 2012. And, and it just, I just couldn't crack it. I just couldn't start it. I didn't mm-hmm. know how to uh, how to structure it or frame it. Like I'm I felt like there was a fire hose of information and yeah. and year after year it goes 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 and then finally it comes to a point where uh, I I think I I was we were talking about this quote earlier. It's it's this great Miles Davis quote um you have to play a long time before you can play like yourself. Right? Mm-hmm. And it felt like you kind of you have to kind of ease into your skin through time. Uh and and you need the mileage and and I felt like during COVID, during the pandemic, where it seemed mm-hmm. like everything else was falling apart, mm-hmm. uh, this was an act of creation. Like, I, I mm-hmm. felt like now is the time. Just like you, I felt now is the time. Like, I felt it. Uh, and and then it just came, once I was able just to crack my brain around how to structure it, it just came. I remember I started this book, the first draft in August, last August. And yeah. my uh, my editor uh, my editor was like, okay, well, I'll see you in six months. I'm like, no, no, I'll finish this before my 40th birthday in three months. She goes, ha, sure. And she's like, I'm like, what? No. She goes, no, no. Uh, it, w- when you come back in November, I'll expect an email saying three more months. But I did it, and I, and I just wow. flowed, and I, and a, and a, it was like 450 pages. Don't worry, the the final book is 450 pages. But once I started writing it, it just it just came to me like it was there. Um, yeah. But it's like I said before, it's easier to sit there and say that, oh, I wrote in three months. That's incorrect. It's it's a 40-year journey. I would yes, not have been able to right. write this at the age of 30. And I'm sure you haven't would have been able to write this five years ago. No, that's right, Watch. Such a similar experience, really, sitting outside in my yard, typing, typing, typing. It did come out of me as though it were water mm. or had already been written and I was transcribing, you know, like taking dictation type of thing. That's how fast it came out. And... It, it it flowed out of my soul, mm. and I've read enough of the pieces that you're putting in the world about your book to know that your book flowed out of your soul, which is why I wanted you to come and talk to me about this 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 particular part of the book, which is how to love ourselves. Mm. I just feel like you and I are, you know, I'm a couple years older than you. I shall not say how many. But I look older than you. So there you go. I, do you look older? I don't think so. I absolutely. Black doesn't but crack. I I, black <laughs> black ages regally. And I am, you know, you know, apparently Asian doesn't raisin, but I'm like the the outlier. So there you <laughs> That's go. That's so funny. 
Listen, I do think I look kind of close to your age. I'll give I'll give yeah. that to myself. But you and I have had such a similar experience, Waj, of what it means to learn to love yourself. That's right. Right. What it means to learn to love yourself despite the container, the atmosphere, the environment, the culture, the crappy, stupid words that you get told, right? The way the world treats Muslims and black people. We learned how to love ourselves, but we really learned how to love ourselves. And I just wanted to make sure you and I had a chance to talk about why is it so hard? I want to put an F right there, but I won't. Why is it so, you know, mm. hard to, to, to raise babies, to raise mm. children, to raise adults in a culture that's just so full of hatred? Why, why are we like this? So, uh, you know, it's coincidental that we're, we're taping this podcast today, uh, middle of October. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I really just, I had no idea. I mean, I, I should have just last night, I guess, uh, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to do this podcast. But things just – to answer your question, late last night, I tweeted something, a thread that kind of mm. went viral. My mm. daughter, Nuseba, who's five years old, born and raised right. in this country, a stage four cancer survivor, about two months ago, she just told us, I, I don't like my skin color. I want to be white. I don't like brown um, skin. And it was just like a gut punch. And my wife and I were <sighs> devastated because you have to realize – we did everything in our power for the past five years to affirm her beauty. And we got, you know, dolls of color and all the children's books and, you know, Moana and, and Princess and the Frog and, you know, affirmed her for her beauty. And, and especially when she was going through chemo. And then she just said this. And we're like, how could we have failed? What did we do wrong? And, and we realized that, you know, the, the, the insidious reach of whiteness um, not white people. I'm talking about whiteness. The, the yeah. narrative that centers white skin and blue eyes, right? No matter how much we put a fortress around our daughter and insulated her and protected her and uplifted her, it still creeped through. It still creeped through, through the yeah. narratives, through the dolls, through the images, through the social media, right? Yeah. That this five-year-old beautiful girl, I mean, just stunning, oh uh, would look at she herself and say, huh. um, Oh, I don't, I, I don't, I don't like my brown skin. And so for the last two months, I was just like, there's no way in hell, man. There's no way in hell my daughter's going to grow up like this. So every, every day for two months, my wife and I, right, what I do is uh, I'm like, Nuseba, look at you. Nuseba, that skin. Oh, I wish I had that skin. Oh my God, look at that brown skin. But at the same time, while not, while not either giving her a superiority complex over other people and and telling her and her brother and her baby sister that she is simply one color amongst the many beautiful colors. Allah made her this way. And other yeah. people are white or beautiful and other people are black or beautiful, but Allah made her this way. And she's stunning. <laughs> and so yesterday, last night, randomly while looking in the mirror, she goes, I love my brown skin. You know, I really oh, do. Good. <laughs> and then, and then she puts on a little makeup. She's five years old. She's a little diva. She's putting on like some eye makeup. She goes, I did that eye makeup, the white eye makeup on my skin. I look really beautiful. So I love my brown skin. I'm telling you the whole night I was on cloud oh. nine, like till 4am I couldn't sleep. But me and my, I exhaled. I was like, Sarah, we did it. My God. Like, and I'm like, may she inshallah always uh, consider herself valued and loved and beautiful, right? But that, t- I'm, thank you for letting me indulge in that story. But you asked me this question, and that's what we have to deal with. 
We have to deal with this where my five-year-old daughter thinks she's less than simply due to her skin color. And so how do we protect our children? How do we protect ourselves? How do we tell them that your nose is fine? Your eyes are fine. Your hair is fine. How do you make them not hate themselves and their name, their multisyllabic name, their ethnic culture, their ethnic food? Mm -hmm. It is an act. It is an act of resistance, a daily act of resistance. And the thing is, this is, you know, resistance is exhausting. Like it, it, yes. you know, people say, oh resist Trump. I'm like, resist, resist. And I'm like, yo, like I also got to pay my bills and I got climate change and, you know, I'm on the wrong side of 40. I got to take I'm, a nap yeah, every now and then. I want to take a nap. Uh, I'm tired. <laughs> uh, you know, what happens if my mask broke? I, did I, did I freaking wash my hands and before I shook that person? You know, it's exhausting. <laughs> and so I think, yeah. I think the flip side of that is, is also joy. And I think the, the power of joy and investing in joy, because joy is also an, an act of resistance. Uh, yes, to have joy in spite of thousands of years of narratives that make you hate yourself the way you look, mm-hmm. that make you hate yourself for your, the, 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 the shape of your hair, that make you hate yourself for, for the, the colors in your food. And, and I feel like this is one of those situations where yeah. – you have to put in the work because in the absence of the work, um, whiteness will win. And so mm-hmm. the hope is, and, and, and sorry for my TED talk here. The hope is that I'm willing to put in the work so that my children inherit a different narrative. Amen. Amen. Inshallah. That's why my um, book, you know, that's why I did the book. Honestly, the book is dedicated yeah. to my kids. It's, it's for Ibrahim, yeah. Nuseib, and Khadija because I want them to have, I want them to write the next chapter, but I don't want them to be saddled with all the crap that you and I had to go through. Oh my gosh, that is such a good prayer. Watch, I want to pick up right where we are there about for our kids, right? Um, I, don't, I did not have babies out of my body. My, my eggs were old by the time I was happily married to John. They were like, nope, no thank you. But I have two grandchildren because in the marriage to John, I got a son. So like people might get pearls, they might get cows, they might get a house. I got a son. Love I got it. a son that came with the marriage. And his name is Joel. And I love him so much. He's sweet. And we fixed him up with one of the young women in our church, Gabby. So I am a matchmaker, just in ah, case you didn't there you know. there you go. Classic auntie. And Exactly. Auntie Jackie. And we have two babies. Octavius is 18 months and Ophelia is three. And I think about, and so they're biracial kids. Gabby is Jamaican-American. Do I hear little babies? Yeah. Can, can, <laughs> can Have them say hi. Okay. Nunu, come here and say hi to Reverend Jackie. Come here and say hi, my beloved. Hi. Hello, beautiful. Say hi real quick. Hi. Hear that? Say hi. Who is this princess? Who is this gorgeous girl? Hi. Hi, Nuseba. Hi, Nuseba. Oh, oh, oh. We'll be right back. Okay. We'll be right back. Hi. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I, I just share your passion for thinking about how to create the world we want for our kids mm-hmm. and how to make and how to set a table for the kids to make the world better for their kids. And the thing that has to be absolutely named and addressed is all the ways whiteness, I call it that too, the white supremacy narrative, the junk that's in the universe about blindness and blue-eyedness, the way the church, I'll critique it, has got all that 
stuff wrapped up in there, you know, the white Jesus who doesn't exist and the white supremacy that pretends to be, um, you know, the way of God. I, I just, I, I throw my whole world at that watch. This is, this is my work in the world is to dismantle, to dismantle racism, to dismantle homophobia, to, to dismantle Islamophobia and anti-Semitism so our children can be in a world that lets them love themselves. Mm. Like, they have to have a world in which they can love themselves so they can love other people, so they can love the world. Because if they don't, if there's a hole in their soul where love should be, what kind of a hot mess world is it going to be? I, I, amen. Right? Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. It's so difficult, right? It's one of those things where people say, oh, this is just nonsense, you know, you know, pie in the sky, airy fairy liberal talk. But you see so many damaged people. I have so yeah. many colleagues and friends my age who it took them years to love themselves. You know, yeah. Yeah, they yeah. changed their name. They changed their eyes. They cut their nose. Uh, they hid aspects of themselves that in, in no way, shape or form uh, they should be ashamed of. Uh, they don't eat with their hands. They, 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 you know, they, they ridicule their ethnic foods, their mom's accents, um, because you're told that your stories don't matter. Your stories don't have yeah. value. And when yes. you, and it's not like your parents sit there and like give you a lesson. It's just, it's like my daughter, where did she get it from? You just absorb it all around. It's all around you. It's like, it's like it's coronavirus. <laughs> it'll it'll no, get you. It, yeah, it, it is. It's in the air. And, you know, in a kind of psych way, my PhDs in psychology and religion. Ooh, fancy. Um, this idea of the kind of container that we create in which the stuff in it is harmful to the child. So the the N word, the F word, mm. the um, Osama bin Laden, mm. and the you're a terrorist, and you know your story of being outside for how you look and how you believe, the weight consciousness in our nation, the decision about what's beautiful, mm. the the who fits in, the who's the norm, the who decides. And the ironic thing of how our nation is allegedly built by people who were looking for freedom, but came here and created a culture that wasn't free for anybody but themselves, that really breaks my heart. Did I ever tell you the story about Lisa? No. My, my little, my, how I learned I was an inward when I was little? No. I mean, I I, uh, I was uh, in kindergarten living um, in New Hampshire with my mom and dad. I was not old enough to live by myself. So I lived with my parents because I was five. Mm. And um, they were in this white community, right, in the Air Force. I was the only black kid in my class. And I had 
two friends, Tommy Holly, Tommy Hollister, who were my neighbors. We walked to school together. We walked home together. We took naps together because that's what you did when you were exhausted from playing with blocks. And they, um, they were my buds. So then this little girl named Lisa moves to town from Mississippi. Mm. And she's a little white girl with, you know, green eyes and whatever else, how she looked. Stage whispers, sits between me and Tommy Holly and stage whispers, why are you sitting next to that nasty N-word? Wow. Why are you sitting next to that nasty N-word? And don't you know she gets chocolate milk from her mother's tits? What? I had never heard the N-word from my black parents. And chocolate milk from her mother's tits, it was like a, what? Milk comes out? I had no idea what she was talking about. But I knew she was being mean. I knew she was being nasty. And it was a defining story, watch, for me of like, before that, I'm just Jackie. Emma and Richard's kid. And after that, I'm outside. I'm, there's something wrong. And my mom greeted that story with, Jackie, that's so silly, of course. Mm. White people aren't better than black people. And helped me to pray about it. I'm like praying, God, let it be that no matter what color people are, they feel loved. That was my childhood mm. dream and prayer. And then my dad was like, I'm going to the Air Force Base, Commander, and we're demanding reparations. And we got an apology. Mm. I think that's the beginning of my story of activism. And um, but, it, but, but School is oftentimes where you learn your hierarchy in America. Yeah. Yeah, because the same with me. Because because other before that, you know, it, you were at home. You were you were Jackie. You were just a girl. You watch, yeah. And then I went to school like you, and you realize, oh, not everyone else is brown. People are speaking this language called English that no one speaks in my home. People aren't mm. eating with their hands. No one has turmeric stains on their shirt. Uh, I'm the overweight kid who wears husky pants. I'm the token Muslim. I'm the token brown guy. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm mocked for my name. Why? What's wrong mm. with my name? How, and I remember, I, I, and look at this, it's, like, it's, stuff, it's stuff that, I mentioned this in my book, but now it just comes back to me. It's, I remember I was, I think it was seven, no, I was seven years old in second grade, and I went home, and I said, Mom, can, we, can, can you change my name? She goes, what? Can you change my name to wow. Walter or Wilbur? Because <laughs> I think it was like <laughs> Charlotte's Web or something, or there was a character Wilbur. I'm like, because those, those are like names, American names that they like. And my mom's like, your name is Wajahat. We named you Wajahat. <laughs> but even at such a young age, right? Because yeah. something is wrong with me. My name yeah. is wrong. It's the wrong name. Yep. It's the, the other kids are named Chet and Travis and Kent. And, and I want to get invited Kent. to their house and eat something called meatloaf. Let's have meatloaf, mom. And my mom's like, we're going to hit, have biryani. No one's going to eat meatloaf here. <laughs> and, and you want Jennifer. You know, my first crush, crush was Jennifer. This, this beautiful, you know, uh, white, blue-eyed girl with golden curls, right? Because that was the model of beauty that I saw around me. And so, but you realize you're the outsider. You're the foreigner. Yes. You're the stranger. Yep. You're the other in your own country. And I think it's yeah. school. Schools, when we first learn, tag your it. You don't belong. That's it. That's right. And it sticks with us. And, of course it does. And not to, not for nothing, but I think all this uproar from the people who don't know what they're talking about, about critical race theory, is is like 
a way to have their precious white children, sorry, nice white people, but their precious white children can't be traumatized by the story of race in America or can't be traumatized by the history of the Holocaust, right? Or can't be traumatized by thinking about what we've done in the Muslim world to actually cause people to hate us. So there is this interesting space, watch, in my mind of the, um, where is the acculturating of hatred? Yes, at school, right? But, and yes, in the sandbox, right? And yes, in the classroom. And then, and then it ends up being the othering in the marketplace. It ends up being the othering on the subway. What we teach our children is what I'm trying to say is the way the world is going to be. They're watching us. They're paying attention to us. Sondheim says it best. Children will listen. That's right. So what do we want to do? Like, how are we going to create a world in which children learn to love themselves? Because here's what I think, my friend. I think the white supremacists don't love themselves. I think the, I think the, I think the capitalists who don't think you should have enough food on your table, they don't love themselves. Mm. I think there's a hole in them where love could have been. And they stuff themselves with all these um, ideas of hatred and bigotry because actually they feel like junk themselves. What do you think about that hypothesis? No, I think that's true. There's something missing in them that needs to be Mm -hmm. filled with hate and a narrative of hate that gives them the feeling the feeling of superiority, right? Make America great again made people feel great. It didn't make them great. Right. Right. Trump makes you feel great. He doesn't put food on your table. He doesn't bring back the coal mines. He doesn't help you with health insurance. He doesn't give you vaccines for COVID. But he gives you this feeling of of superiority, a feeling of belonging, a feeling uh, that you too can one day be great again, right? It's the narrative, this romantic myth that ah, we can go back in the tra- time machine to this 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 mythical land and l- time when we were at the top, which never existed, by the way. And that feeling of superiority, which is an illusory, fickle feeling, comes at the expense of everybody else. Exactly. And so exactly. you have to be missing something in your life that you are so addicted to a con man's narrative, right? That you're willing to literally die for this. You're literally willing to eat horse paste instead of uh, uh, take a vaccine. You're willing to sacrifice our children in schools and, and right. you know ban right. mask van- mandates. Like, what is it inside you that is missing or that is so bereft that you need to indulge the worst demons of yourself just to feel, not be, just to, to feel, feel great again, right? Yeah, and just so to feel the, the yeah. unfortunate part is, yes, we feel pity. I do because once you kind of. Once you really, if you look at white supremacists, especially those who are formers, I'm talking about people who are like straight up in the KKK, Nazis, right, people who right. were those, you know, Doc Marins and stomped on the rest. Once, of them, once those folks are reformed, every single memoir, I was a broken person. I needed yes, love. Absolutely. I didn't That's have a right. father or mother. Right. No That's one right. uplifted me. I, right. I joined because right. I felt good. I was given, right. a, I was, I was given um, order. I, I was given respect. Women looked up to me. Uh, but I it had was a try- feeling of belonging. There you go. To, it filled something inside me. But yeah, yeah. All of them. Like literally sure. just look at every single yes. former extremist, right? You just, you, you, you see it. And so the sad part is if, if they can have an intervention with love, uh, mm-hmm. with joy, with kindness. But the problem here is, well, not necessarily the problem, the challenge. This is the challenge. It's always been the challenge. The challenge is, is that people of color oftentimes who are suffering more than them are expected to not only nurture 
and fill ourselves up with joy, but then also be their bagger vents. Right. That's right. Watch. Yep. Right. If you see the movie, The Legend of Bagger Vance, you're like, wait, you're telling me that Will Smith is like this mythical creature, this angel who spends the entire movie helping Matt Damon, who has a privileged life, just basically get a better golf swing. So then he can have sex with Charlize (laughs) Theron. And then once he gets a good golf swing back, literally the movie Bagger Vance just just walks away. He goes, all right, bye. Bye. <laughs> so, See ya. So, so like, like it's like Queen Latifah in that movie bringing down the house with like Steve Martin. Like her job is, you know, it's like that person of color. Your job is to bring the funk. Your job yeah. is to help the white person feel joyful again. Uh, you're, per, you know, and so, but meanwhile, we're also supposed to protect our children. We're also yeah. supposed to tell our children you're beautiful. And so, I remember when you invited me to your church, and inshallah, the church will be remade and rebuilt and yeah, even man. more glorious. I remember I made the case like three years ago, right before the pandemic. I made the case right. <clears throat> where even though it's exhausting, we should still invest in joy and we should still invest in patience and we should still invest in forgiveness and do the work. And I remember I said that acknowledging the pain and the hardship, but also if you followed in the footsteps of the prophets, the, the prophets experienced all this. You know, the prophets went through worse. The prophets went through all this. They did. And I know we're not prophets, but we're supposed to model, model ourselves on, on, on prophetic conduct. And so, you know, when I see all this, it's easy to tap out. It's easy to be cynical. It's easy to be exhausted. It's easy to say F it all. But I think the book, your book, my book, why do we do it? We're not going to get rich off it. Inshallah, if we get rich, that'd be amazing. But, that would be amazing. Yeah, then we could do a whole another th- kind of thing awesome. But I think the reason yeah. why we did it is, is there's a need, right? This narrative, this yeah. story. The story that is not told, the story that needs to be heard, the story that our children need to read, an alternative story about the America that we have experienced, that a very damaged, broken, powerful, wealthy minority wants to extinguish because it will expose them to hard truths about this country and themselves that they're unwilling to acknowledge. And the microcosm of that, the metaphor of that, the realization of that is this bad faith attack on CRT. It's right in front of us. Yeah, that's exactly right. Watch. I love that you bring us back to joy because what what I believe is true is that this love of self is connected to joy and that joy builds love of self, right? So my my daughter-in-law and my son have incredibly crazy senses of humor and they teach their children how to dance. They have Friday night dance outs. We laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. The children jump on our stomachs. I'd have a better body if I played with the children more often. They climb on us like we're mountains. There is such a playfulness in the family. And those kids will, I think, have a reservoir of joy inside themselves Mm. as an antidote to the hate. It's kind of cyclical in my mind, watch. um, Rumi says... When you do something from your soul, it's a river, it's a joy. Mm. So this idea of our calling to be prophetic, our, our calling to be revolutionary lovers, our calling to make the world a place where younger wadges come along and don't get teased and told to go back home, and younger Jackies don't get called the N-word and get to you know grow in a flourishing place. The joy... The joy, the play, the activism, the the changing of the story, the 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 love that is unconditional, mm. um, a non-possessive delight in the unique particularity of the other. Jim Loder says, mm. non-possessive delight of the unique particularity of the other. That kind of love will lead to joy, and that kind of joy is self-acceptance, and that kind of being filled with joy and light 
chases out the hatred in ourselves, and then pretty soon we're not building a bigoted world. No, absolutely. And we don't need then the affirmation of others because we are complete, right? Yes. That's the power. Like you don't need the affirmation of others. And at the same time, you don't, you're not filled with this anger and this rage right. of trying to prove to the world, I made it, right? Because oftentimes you hear a lot of athletes say that, right? Like, I'm going to show them. Who are you going to show? Like, you know, I'm going to show them all. And, and, you, and you're driven by that. Wonderful. But there's also something, I think, damaging there where you, yeah. you feel like you have to compare yourself to this 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 mythic villain that we've all, yeah. which is very real, by the way, kind of said this amorphous villain. Let me put it that way. Not mythic, very real villain that says you don't belong. And then you finally get yeah. there and you still don't feel complete. And, and what we want to do, I think, with these stories is inoculate our children, like almost like a virus, right? There's a virus. You want to inoculate and protect your children. You want to give them joy, self-affirmation, and love. And then simultaneously with the activism, you want to do the work to spread that inoculation so that right. you can limit and quarantine the virus, right? That's right. A, a critical mass of people inoculated against hate. There you go. That's, no, that's literally yeah. it. And then, and then slowly it. but surely, yeah. that mass expands, 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 expands. And I think the reality that we all have to acknowledge is that it's never going to be fully removed. There will always be forces of, of just pain and hate and anger and xenophobia. But if we can quarantine it, limit it, right, surround it with this critical mass of love, then for the majority of our children, they can be the co-protagonist of the American narrative. Not only that, they feel like the co-protagonist of the American narrative. It's not this mythical reach. It's not a you know, fantastical dream. Uh, oh, right. there was once an Obama. Maybe in 40 years, there might be another Obama. Oh, he, Obama was just the outlier, right? It's one of those situations where like, yeah, why not me? Why can't I be the why president? Why not me? And maybe I would, would want to add this into what you're saying, Waj. The, the narrative that would be America, the promise that was the promise of America, that actually never, thinking about Lynx and Hughes, it, it, was America ever America to me and you fully? No. no. But maybe we can, if we stay with our metaphor of let's inoculate against hatred, maybe we build such love that there is a mutation mm. <laughs> in the virus that is hatred. Mm. And the result of it is a love that rebuilds the promise or takes us toward the promise of equality and justice. Like America's actually finally what she said she thought she could be. Yeah. Maybe. You know, I, yeah. I, mean, I, think, I think the metaphor works, right? Because this whole concept of the American dream has been the American nightmare for so many people. Uh, it's, it's never been able to be achieved by many of us because it, it's, it's, it's like a bag of lemons. Yeah. Where hmm. if you hmm. are of the right cast, the right color, the right class, yeah, you can achieve it. But you achieve it at the expense of the rest of us. And so I, yeah. I think the reason why in particular black folks, but also, you know, those who are marginalized in, marginalized in this community really understand this country really well is we've seen all the sides. We've seen the joy yes. and the pain. We see the yep. warts. We have yes. the good x-ray. Uh, and we are not, we are not. Uh, fooled or we are not in an illusion about what the there, there you are, go because right? because yeah. yeah. you live That's through right. it you experience it yeah. and i think what the pandemic did is people say oh the pandemic flattened us what i say is the pandemic flattened us but it flattened us unequally and what the pandemic showed was this brilliant clear pristine x-ray of this country all of it 
the angels, the it. demons, the warts, the pains, the scars, yeah. all of it. You see it right here. Billionaires have made more billions. Rich have gotten richer. Black and brown folks, because of systemic racism and inequality, are dying at higher yeah. rates because they don't have yes. access, right? right. Disinformation. Exactly. Men and women who are threatened by equality and by fierce love doing everything they can in this death everything march for can. whiteness. Everything. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's a, and it is a death march. It is, a, it is in the death throes. Yeah. Whiteness is dying. The death rattle becomes a death march. And it doesn't want to die. Yeah, exactly. And my fear is, and, uh, you know, we've been saying this before. I said this, I believe, in the the last time I was on your podcast, is the reason why we can't give up the fight, right? Even though we're Mm -hmm. so exhausted, is this death march is playing for all the marbles. And I remember I gave this analogy a couple years ago on MSNBC. I said, uh, again, it's just an analogy. It's a metaphor. If given a choice between renting a room in their house to a person of color or a woman or someone who's indigenous or someone who comes from the S-hole countries or burning down the house, they will elect to burn down the village. Right. They will burn the house. everything down, yes. including themselves. Right. And people yeah. say, no, Wajahat. And I say, I give you Trump. I give you the January 6th insurrection. I give you them literally, uh, you know, removing all the water from pools and literally saying, we're not going to have the community pool if it means having because black, the black kids people got in there. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. and so what more do you need to know? And so that's why, you know, in a way we have this moment. I love it. I always love this, these euphemisms. We're living in a heightened moment in America. I'm like, there's been a lot of moments. When will this moment become a permanent reality? Right. Exactly. But, so, but we're in a moment still. And we're seeing the backlash to the moment that we all predicted. But I feel like there is a, a moment that we can capitalize on. As we emerge from this pandemic, I really do. I feel like if, if, if enough of us, just enough of us really work together and really try to promote this vision, this narrative, this quote unquote dream of America, it'll be very hard for them to take us all the way back to 1953 again. Yep. I think that's right, my friend. And one of the things that I have is a secret dream. Don't tell anybody. This is a secret. Oh, I'm going to say it. I hope one day that more of them, and we know who we mean, mm. become a part of us. That's right. Because love just feels better, right? Because love just feels better. And they come to understand that this is actually what they want, mm. is this culture of love and justice. Can, can I ask you, what do you know for sure about love? Mm. What do I know for sure about? What do you know yeah. for sure yeah. about love? No, no, love? it's, it's yeah. a profound question. Uh, what I know for sure about mm-hmm. love is that if you are lucky and privileged enough to receive it, mm-hmm. it is the greatest gift uh, on this journey we call life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not take it for granted. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like you are the luckiest human being if even for a moment you are able to receive it and give it. And I know it exists because I have received it from my family and my wife. And I know it exists because I give it uh, to my children. And, and I believe if, you know, it's, it's one of the great tragedies in life. I really mean this, that if you go through this journey called life, which is oftentimes very painful for most people, filled with suffering, uncertainty, regret, uh, mm-hmm. hopes that are just crushed, stolen from you. 
But you know what makes it less lonely and and uh, worthwhile is if you're able to experience love, you know, either to receive it or give it. It, give it. it makes yeah. the journey sweeter, and and it, and it brings sweet. joy. And so I feel like that's the one thing at the age of forty. And they say in Islam, this is a, a you know a famous saying that wisdom descends on the age of forty. Uh, uh, apparently, for me, it's going to be forty-one. I'm delayed, but they say forty is when you you know be, you become a mature adult. Forty is a very okay. significant number in age uh, uh, in Islam, right? So, if I have learned anything, it's that I know nothing, which is a sign of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Number one, yes. But I Absolutely. do know that you know on this journey called called life, and I'll I'll say this. I don't know if I shared this last time, but I mentioned this in the book. You know, my decision to get married resulted from a near death experience. I was about to die. And and just miraculously uh the drugs are kicked in and 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 I got saved. And w- during that near death experience, you know, I went through all the stages, you know, negotiation with God, asking for more time, the audit, you know, uh regrets, <laughs> what I should have done, all of it. I went through all of it, I discussed it in the book. And then I made peace. Look, and I'll say this, I I made peace, two types of love. I made peace with my exit because I had faith that there was a loving mm-hmm. God on the other side willing to embrace me. And people mm. say, well, religion is stupid and faith in God is stupid. I said, sure, no problem. You're not offending me. And the religion's a crutch and faith in God is a crutch. I'm like, sure. But in those final moments, that faith and belief that there is a loving God gave me a peace that I experienced and knew to be real. That there is a mm. loving God on the other side, and no matter what happens, inshallah, I will cross over and be embraced by the loving God. The second mm. feeling was that if I do survive this near-death experience, I made a mistake. My one regret that I had, that one regret was, this was the age of 31, I didn't invest in love. I, was, mm. I, didn't, I didn't take the risk. I was yeah. so broke. I was so tired. There were so many challenges. And I said, there's no way a woman would love me. I don't want to bring this baggage to a woman. You know, all those thoughts. That's what kept me, you know, the fear that I would be yeah, rejected. Yeah, yeah. And then, sure. and then I swear to God, I'm, I'm literally swearing to God. Right when I had this regret, I said, oh, if I, I wish I just would have invested in love. That was my one regret. I wish I had a family. And right then my heart stabilized. And then, and then about six to eight months later, uh, I got married. And oh, wow. so, and so that's why when you ask me that simple question, what do I know about love? That, that's, that's what I know about love. That's what you know. Oh, watch. I can't wait to read that. Um, and I got some juicy stories in my book about, about that finding that love. Uh, when I say fierce love, what comes up for you? Fierce love. Ooh, fierce love mm-hmm. is to invest in love in the face of unimaginable horror pain backlash suffering uh and despite it all you you allow love to um guide you through the gauntlet hmm. with faith oh, that inshallah really th- you know through the through the dark forest right let's go back to stories yeah. The, yeah. from time from the beginning of time the dark forest hmm. you know uh, the forest is dark, filled with ghosts and goblins. The the hallway of horrors. What but am I armed with? Anyway. Yeah, I'm armed love. with o- nothing except faith and love, and that inshallah is enough for me to get to the other side. Waj, I love talking to you. 
Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for letting me blabber on and on. Please edit, oh, no, edit me so good. and my verbal diarrhea. <laughs> so and most importantly, pick up Reverend Jackie's book, Fierce Love, which is out in November. Yay. What's the date? November 9th. That's amazing. Coming right and we're, up. And we're, apparently, I'm honored enough that you asked me to help you launch it. That's going to be awesome. You, yep. We're going to have a great conversation on November 9th at uh, 8 o'clock on the Penguin Random House World. And watch, when your book comes out, I want you to invite me to come. I promise to be charming. Uh, you are. Always- if you invite me to come talk about your book with you, I promise to be charming. <laughs> okay. We'll talk about, we'll talk about, you know what we'll talk about? We'll, we'll just what? talk about like how we were like these nerdy kids who were picked on and look at us now. Oh my God. And we'll just look flex for an hour. That's all we'll do. We'll just right, flex. That's right. And we, we can sing, if you could see us yeah, no. now. Hashtag yeah. it gets okay. better. <laughs> I just, I'll throw the mic, you pick up the mic, then you throw the mic. That's all we'll do. People are like, uh, we paid money for this. That's all. We'll just stand there and preen. That's what we'll do. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us today. I loved my conversation with Waj. It is always a wonderful ride with him of laughter and truth-telling. Here's some things I want you to think about as you leave this episode. One is, loving yourself unconditionally is absolutely a hard thing to do. We're just not trained to do it. We're told we're narcissistic, we're told we're self-absorbed, but in fact, the command to love our neighbor as ourselves has to start with us. How can you make a daily affirmation that you are amazing, you are beautiful, you are gifted exactly as you are, and try to delight in yourself? Secondly, if we're going to make a world in which our children can love themselves, we've all got to do a part. And I mean, all the children belong to all of us. What kinds of messages will we put in the universe for the children? Can we begin to paint a picture in which children see themselves as awesome, no matter their skin color, no matter their religion, no matter their gender or sexuality? Can we begin to paint a picture in which they see themselves as beloved. Because when they do, they'll paint that picture for future generations. And this is our goal, is a healed world with people in which they love themselves and can therefore love the other. <laughs>